Hello, I'm Olivia Enos, Senior Policy Analyst at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm pleased to bring you our second episode of Season 2 for China Uncovered, part of our broader China Transparency Project. The project and this series of podcasts are pushing for greater data-heavy transparency for the Chinese Communist Party, and we're doing so by highlighting the work of our friends. I know that last time that our listeners tuned in, I promised that we would be discussing the military and the security environment in China. I'm asking you all to be a little bit patient um, because you're actually going to have to wait another episode um, for us to discuss that subject. But instead, we're going to delve today into China's tech giants and the evolving global landscape in which they operate. And to really unpack this and uh, help us talk through this subject, we have Fergus Ryan from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, also known as ASPE, joining us. Fergus is a senior policy analyst at ASPE's International Cyber Policy Center, or ICPC, and he has worked in the media, in communications, and in marketing roles in both China and Australia for close to a decade. Um, So Fergus, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So to kick us off, can you just give us a little bit of uh, background and context on ASPE's International Policy Center? Sure. Well, um, ASPE's International Cyber Policy Center is based here where I am in Canberra, Australia, um, and we work on cyber, emerging and critical technologies, foreign interference and issues related to information operations and disinformation, things like that. Our aim at the center is to inform public debate globally, and we're particularly focused on supporting policy development here in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, and one of the our core strengths, I think, is that we uh, have a strong focus on producing original empirical and data-driven research. And that's what we've done with the China uh, Tech Map project that has been going on for a few years now. Yeah, that's a perfect segue there. Um, as you know, for our episode today, we're going to be really laser focused on um, ASPE's work mapping China's tech giants and the big project that you guys have on that. Um, can you share with us a broad overview of that project? What does the project track and um, what methodology or even you know sets of methodologies do you guys use uh, to collect that data? Sure. Well, um, the project, I think we capture about 27 major Chinese tech companies now, and that's from across the board of various industries, including biotech, surveillance, AI, um, telecommunications, e-commerce, fintech, and even entertainment. And the aim of this project is to compile all these major companies together and put them in one database where where policymakers, journalists, researchers, and the general public can have a nice sort of bird's eye view of all of these companies and get a, a sense and an understanding of what the Chinese tech industry looks like with a particular focus on how these Chinese tech companies have been 
expanding abroad. Um, and I guess the, the sort of central um, aim of this project is to, you know, once we've laid out this landscape of Chinese tech companies, it then makes it much easier for, for policymakers to then consider what the policy implications are of the, the global expansion of these companies. That's great. It seems like it's uh, this project is really filling a niche um, and and meeting a need in the Indo-Pacific research sphere. That's that's really excellent. Um, what trends, if you know any, does the data on China's tech giants and their activities show? And have these trends been affected at all by the COVID nineteen pandemic? Yeah, so we, as I said, we've we've been tracking these companies for um, some years now, um, and we first launched the the project in two thousand and nineteen, um, and we relaunched it this year in June um, by uh, adding on an additional four new companies. Um, and we uh, produced two major new policy reports um, about all of these companies. And the, for this relaunch, we focused our analysis on what has changed for these companies during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we also took a deep dive into China's global data collection ecosystem and supply chain issues. So, for my part of the project, uh, I um, co-wrote uh, a paper called Reigning in China's Tech Giants. And I wrote that with my colleagues, Daria Impiambato and Audrey Fritz. And in that paper, we initially set out to write about the impact of the onslaught of uh, sanctions that came out of the United States that were targeting many of these major Chinese tech companies. And we wanted to track how uh, the impact of those sanctions. Um, now that was at the beginning of the project. As we continued through the data collection and then finally the writing up of the report, we realized that uh, these companies had really been buffeted by many different factors, not just those sanctions that came from the United States. Importantly, uh, the report came at the same time as the COVID-19 pandemic, and we saw that uh, many of the companies in our database were buoyed by the the economic activity um, that came out of COVID-19, you know, whereas most industries around the world, most traditional industries were hard hit by the pandemic. It was tech companies, not just in China, but also in the United States and the rest of the world that were really buoyed by uh, the, the switch from everyone working um, out in the real world, in offices, and then switching to working at home and relying on those online services. So in fact, it was only 
really three of the companies on our on our map, Huawei, Megvi, and Cloudwalk, um, which experienced slow year-on-year -year revenue growth. But the rest of the companies that we looked at um, did generally quite well out of the pandemic. And as a result of that, we saw that um, many companies, including Tencent, Alibaba, ByteDance, they attempted to turn the crisis of the COVID-19 pandemic into a public relations opportunity um, by providing financial or material assistance to, to countries that were struggling under the pandemic. Um, and then, of course, the, the, um, the sanctions that were coming out of the United States at the time under the Trump administration um, really aimed to sort of to hobble the progress of many of these major companies, in particular Huawei. Um, but then uh, the surprising thing um, to us as we were doing this report was that while the companies were buoyed by COVID and buffeted by these sanctions from the United States, what we hadn't really uh, predicted was that they would also be engulfed in this regulatory storm back at home in Beijing. And that is um, something that began to play out as we were putting uh, this paper together. And we say in the paper, we expect that this will um, continue through uh, 2021 and beyond. Um, and that in fact is what has happened. And we've seen this regulatory storm at home in China um, that has really uh, thrown a spanner in the works for, for many of these tech companies. So it, uh, all in all, it was a very tumultuous time for these uh, Chinese tech companies. Mm, yeah, it's really helpful to get that context. And I think, um, you know, really fascinating as I'm a researcher and policy analyst as well, just seeing how the COVID-19 pandemic did ultimately um, add a factor that everyone had to consider into their research. Um, and certainly this is no different for businesses as they considered the impact of the pandemic, even on their bottom line. I think that it's no secret that tech innovation and the environment for tech innovation in China is fragile. Um, and that fragility uh, was arguably further exacerbated both by the pandemic and by the US-China trade war. And I, you know, I would add here, because you were also talking about various sanctions measures that the U.S. Uh, was undertaking, I guess, as a part of that China trade war. And you highlight all of that in your report. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, that relationship between the fragility of tech innovation and some of these other factors? What um, one of the sort of key themes that came out in our report was was that this combination of the COVID-19 pandemic and the onslaught of sanctions from the United States, um, it really exposed the country's fragility in technological innovation for Chinese leaders. Um, so for example, in a speech to scientists in September 2020, Xi Jinping stressed the need for China to ensure secure and stable supply chains and to pursue indigenous innovation. He said, 
we must give full play to the significant advantages of our country's socialist system that concentrate power on large undertakings and successfully fight tough battles for the key core technologies. Um, and what Xi Jinping was tapping into there is a sentiment that has, has been present in um, Chinese politics and in uh, the way that the Chinese leadership thinks about technological innovation for many years, but was made much more pronounced um, due to the US-China trade war and the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is not um, limited to just China. I think this was a sort of uh, concern that um, many different countries, if not all countries around the world had during the COVID-19 pandemic, that the conditions of the pandemic made it very obvious what um, your, your country's strengths and weaknesses are. And in the case of China, um, you hear Chinese leaders talk a lot about, quote, choke point technologies. And what they're referring to there are technologies, in particular, semiconductors, um, which are sort of really the building blocks of any of the advanced technologies that China really wants to excel in. Um, those uh, technologies, uh, the, the, uh, Xi Jinping um, and Chinese leaders down from Xi Jinping consider that those really crucial and important choke point technologies um, are, it's absolutely crucial for the country to get on top of them if they are to compete uh, with the United States and if they're able to um, upgrade their economy and continue to be a strong country that's developing. Um, so, you know, we've, we've seen this articulated at the very highest levels of the Chinese system in the 14th five-year plan, which was unveiled in March 2021. Um, the, the sort of urgency was really reflected there. And for the, for the first time at that um, forum, or, or rather in that plan, technological innovation and indigenous innovation was, was described as a matter of national security not just as economic development. Wow, <laughs> that's really fascinating. Would you say that the primary CCP response to some of these fragilities in the market has been to focus on these choke point technologies or were there some other coping mechanisms um, that they undertook in response to these fragilities? One of the interesting things about how the Chinese leadership has responded to these challenges is, is that, um, you know, as I was saying before, a lot of, a lot of this um, momentum towards indigenous innovation and building up China's um, science and technology capacity, it's not new. Um, and there have been um, policies in, in the past, in, in recent years, um, in particular, made in China 2025, um, which is their, a major industrial policy aimed at trying to really leapfrog ahead um, in key advanced technologies. Um, and 
as a result of the the sort of the pushback and the sanctions that came out of the United States, that actually gave um, that had the uh, uh, perhaps um, well m most likely an unintended consequence of that was that it was a very strong signal to the Chinese leadership uh, that the areas that the United States were were focusing their attention on and the technologies that they were focusing their attention on, it made it very clear to the Chinese leadership that oh, the, these are the specific areas that we really should be trying to develop um, ourselves. And so um, the, it, you know, both the sanctions and the pandemic really revealed these fragilities and um, made it just very much increase the urgency in the, the top of the Chinese leadership uh, that they make, um, you know, very clear and meaningful progress on things like semiconductors and, and other um, technological innovation that they hope will, will help them um, lead, lead the world in science and technology in the future. So shifting gears just slightly, um, can you highlight some of the unique challenges at play when you collect data on China or the Chinese government's practices? Um, are there any challenges that you think really differ from like traditional data collection in other spheres? Well, I mean, I, I guess the, the first obvious point uh, to make is that it's all done in Chinese. <laughs> so um, <laughs> yes. And, you know, that may seem flippant to say, but it is important um, to point out because um, the ability for researchers to actually dig deep into the original documents, policy documents, um, uh, media reports, uh, etc., cetera, um, really relies on your ability to, to understand what is, what is written and what is being said. Um, so that's the obvious point. I guess another uh, point that is uh, common in any China research or research of, uh, about the People's Republic of China is that uh, the country and uh, many of the companies have sort of very strong ability to take information down and for information to be to be censored and so that was something that was always very much uh, at the top of our minds as we were doing this research because you know um, as as uh, we read um, older reports and 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 try to uh, click through to the to the hyperlinks that that are there um, you often find that once you click through, the information is gone. And so we made it, we made a concerted effort to archive any information uh, that we came across. And that, that was super important because, you know, the 27 companies that we're dealing with, these are massive companies with a huge amount of resources and um, a lot of money behind them. And um, some of the uh, research that we've done has uncovered, you know, quite unflattering things about their conduct. <laughs> um, you know, particularly when you 
when you think about um, some of the AI and surveillance companies that are in our database, um, many of them have been involved in um, uh, in Xinjiang, in um, in Western China, where there have been many human rights abuses against the Uyghur minorities there, uh, as for example, um, and some of the the documentary evidence that shows these companies' involvement um, in some activities in regions like that, for example, um, is information that they they're not keen on the rest of the world um, knowing about that much. And so um, we uh, had to make absolutely sure that um, every time we we found any skerrick of information about these companies, we very assiduously backed it up and back, <laughs> backed up the backup as well. <laughs> Of course. Yeah, well, you know, you guys are are doing such important work in that regard. And I think, you know, this is a reminder of part of the reason why we at Heritage are undertaking this, you know, these transparency efforts is because when you uncover information about like the bad practices of businesses, um, you know, that are leading to things like the massive collectivization of over a million people inside of Xinjiang, your active data collection, your active being able to identify and assess trends may actually end up saving lives. Um, so it's great to hear that that's, you know, an area of focus, um, whether it was inadvertent or, or intentional. Um, I, I've no doubt that this unsavory information, however, has uh, elicited some sort of reaction or response from the Chinese government to your research and findings. Can you comment on that a little bit? Uh, yeah, I I think you know we've probably received more responses from from companies um, than the Chinese government in particular on on this particular project. Um, that's not to say that the Chinese government, through um, the Chinese Foreign Ministry, for example, hasn't had a lot to say about um, many of Aspie's other China-related um, projects and papers. Um, they certainly have. Um, but in, in this um, particular case with this project, um, it's generally the companies uh, that have uh, pushed back um, more so than the Chinese government. And that hasn't necessarily been something that's been done out in the open for the public to see. But I can assure you that we certainly um, do receive um, feedback from the companies in question. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about that is that um, often um, when they have challenged any of the information that we've included in this project, we have gone back and triple checked what we had already triple checked before um, and then actually found more evidence of their activities um, that they um, didn't want the rest of the world to, to know about. And we have updated the, the data set with that new information. So um, that's been one of the more um, interesting outcomes that we've had from the feedback from these companies.
<laughs> I love that attempts to call into question your research uh, has led to <laughs> um, even more being uncovered. That's crazy, um, but certainly useful. <laughs> Um, so many of our, our listeners are a part of the policymaking community, and um, obviously your research has some relevance to them as well. What areas of China's tech industry are under-researched or, or merit additional attention? Oh, well, you know, frankly, all of it. Um, take your pick. Um, we've really gone for an encyclopedic approach um, with this project, and we've we've laid it all out there, um, we've we, and we've focused on these now twenty seven companies. But it really is only the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there were many many companies that we left out, um, and there's um, a, you know huge amount of activity that these companies are involved in um, that needs to be captured. And I, I guess, you know, that's that goes to, you know, the core or one of the core reasons why we felt that this work was so important. Um, it's because, you know, back in 2018, 2019, we were receiving so many calls from journalists and um, policymakers um, asking us about these different companies and what they're up to. And we just felt that there wasn't a one-stop shop that you could go to that would give you the overview of these companies that that we really just naturally already have when it comes to Western tech companies. Of course, there's much about uh, Western and in particular um, US tech companies that we don't know about, but as we're seeing at the moment with a whistleblower from inside Facebook. A lot of the information that these companies want to keep secret is coming out. And as we speak, uh, a Facebook whistleblower is is um, talking to Congress, I believe, who and and is um, uh, making it clear what practices are going on inside that company um, that uh, that she feels are. Um, are not good, um, but we don't really have the same mechanisms in place when it comes to Chinese tech companies. And um, it's much worse, in fact, because one of the um, key findings that we have found time and again, as we've done multiple papers throughout the course of this project, is um, the influence of the Chinese Communist Party within these these companies. It's just building up and up. Um, the party building inside the companies has been, is, you know, one of the key trends that we've been seeing. Um, and there are um, more recent developments where you're seeing um, special, what they call golden shares that are being um, utilized to ensure that um, government-linked organizations are able to sit on the board of these companies. So for example, ByteDance, the company that owns and operates TikTok, uh, now has a board member um, who uh, that is very closely linked to the Chinese government. 
and it gives the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party um, an inordinate amount of control and oversight over these uh, companies. Um, so uh, that's why, you know, one of the, the key reasons why um, it's, it's so important to be able to collect as much information about what these companies are up to and translate it into English and, and try to provide some an analysis and context about what these companies are and what they're trying to do. That was really helpful. I feel like you gave our listeners a lot of fodder for uh, their own future research. And also um, your comments about how, you know, sometimes party officials are embedded within Chinese uh, companies and, you know, that leads to a, a lot of entanglements on the international stage. It reminds me of um, a fabulous book I read uh, actually fairly recently called The Party by Richard McGregor, which really goes into um, just the ways in which the party has manipulated and controlled um, the business sector, but also how the business sector has manipulated and controlled the party in various ways. And so sometimes it's a question of, um, is it the tail wagging the dog or the dog wagging the tail? Uh, it's just really interesting and fascinating. Um, but uh, okay, so our final question uh, to conclude is that I, I would really love to hear um, from you on what action you'd like to see in response to the findings of your reports. Um, what are some of the most effective ways that you believe policymakers, but I would also add even the business community, um, you know, can make use of, of this ample data that you guys have, have pulled together? Yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's a really important question. And I guess we've, we've seen um, some of the attempts to, to deal with the, the rise and expansion of these um, tech companies um, already take place. So, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the sanctions from the United States under the Trump administration that targeted many of these Chinese companies. And, you know, um, I think we've seen mixed results from that. Um, I think it's, it's certainly uh, true to say that Huawei, for instance, um, was somewhat kneecapped by, by those moves. And that perhaps has slowed their ability to expand at quite the rapid pace that it was before. Um, but again, as we were discussing earlier, uh, one of the unintended consequences of, of that um, onslaught of sanctions was to make it crystal clear to Chinese leaders that they ne really needed to prioritize technological innovation. So there are perhaps unintended consequences um, from different um, policy prescriptions um, in this field. Um, I think, you know, in general, um, as I was discussing before, the, the, the aim of, of um, the report that we wrote and this project in general is, is just to promote a more informed debate about the growth of these um, Chinese tech giants. And we're, we, in our analysis, we really tried to highlight areas where their expansion raises political, geostrategic, ethical, and you know human rights concerns. Um, and by laying it all out there, um, it makes it 
easier for um, policymakers to see these companies for what they are. And I guess, you know, to somewhat simplify it, um, what is very clear and what is becoming um, even more clear is that um, the close ties that these um, tech companies um, have with the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party, it makes it really difficult for them to be politically neutral actors. And so for Western governments and corporations, um, developing risk mitigation strategies is really essential. Um, and that's uh, you know, even more important when it comes to uh, critical technology areas. Um, so, you know, it's about governments and uh, Western and and corporations um, to just be aware of what these companies are, what their aims are, and how they're expanding out into the world um, to be able to deal with them in a way that is is based on empirical reality. Yeah, thank you so much for ending on such a comprehensive note. I think it it leaves our listeners whether they're from the business community, the policy community, just a, you know, eager China watcher um with a lot to think about and and definitely left us with a better understanding of China's lack of transparency in the technological space. So, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Yeah. Well, um, you know, thank you as always to our listeners um, for joining. I hope that you found our discussion as helpful as I did. And as always, for those eager to learn more, please check out our China Transparency Project website and the 2021 China Transparency Report. I'm going to go ahead and include a link to the website and the report in the show notes um, for you to check out afterwards. And the website and, and the report hopefully will serve as useful resources to listeners who are eager to learn more about the data-driven research documenting the activities of the CCP. We'll also be sure to uh, drop links to the uh, ASPE report that we chatted about today. But thank you once again to our listeners for tuning in to China Uncovered, a podcast that's dedicated to pulling back the veil on the activities of the Chinese Communist Party. In two weeks from now, and this is for real this time, um, we will bring you another episode where we're going to discuss China's activities, and this time it will be in the military and in the security space. And don't forget to subscribe to China Uncovered on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast app. And if you enjoyed this show, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. China Uncovered is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.